Welcome to Agriculture in North Carolina. Hello, farmers and friends. I'm Dan Miller. This program is all about the largest industry in our state, and that's agriculture. Hats off to North Carolina Christmas tree growers. You know, I thought starting a vineyard was a long process, establishing the vines, picking the fruit, and waiting for it to come of age. But 10 years from planting the saplings to harvesting Christmas trees, not for the faint of heart. Or is it an occupation to start at retirement? I hope your tree is real and pretty and got to be NC. Brother Jeff Turner is away this week, so I'll take a moment to hook up with David Zimmerman. He's the producer of the Southern Farm Show in Raleigh. That's just over 30 days from now. You know, David's dad started that show in Atlanta back in the 1970s. It moved a few years later to Raleigh after stopping in Macon and Memphis. Also on this week's show, we're going to take a deep dive into cotton genetics. Dr. Jason Woodward of Phytogen joins us. We'll talk about nematode-resistant cotton. For the casual ag and NC listener, nematodes such as root knot are a variety of microscopic parasitic worms. They can often be identified by the presence of a swollen bump or knot on the root system. Painful for the plant and for the overall yield as well. Ag and NC is made possible by Ag Carolina Farm Credit. First Choice Insurance Partners, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, got to be NC. Find links to those folks on our website, aginnc.com. David Zimmerman is the producer of the Southern Farm Show in Raleigh, joins us every year at about this time. And, and David, what's the start date of the show? Uh, it starts January 31st. We, the show always ends the first Friday in February. Ah. So sometimes that's February 1st. And, and then, like this year, it's February second. So. How is the show shaping up? I mean, you've got—I I don't want to say the usuals, but uh, the Southern Farm shows down to a basic science, right? You've got continuing education for pesticides. You got the Tobacco Growers Association meeting, North Carolina Growers Association meeting, breakfast with the commissioner, and bluegrass music from our good friends at Ag Carolina Farm Credit. <laughs> Those are things we've come to depend on, as well as fantastic fair food, even though it's not a fair. Look at this show map. You may have a space or two, but it looks like you're close to sold out. show is sold out, actually, for the indoor space. Um, uh, we do have a couple of spaces at this point uh, available outdoors. We've put in as many tents as practically fit on the fairgrounds. you got to have enough. We have five again this year, uh, and they're all uh, filled to the brim. And so, do you see anything different from folks that uh, are registering to get uh, to bo- get booths at the show this year? I mean, I assume that precision ag and AI and drone technology is probably buzzwords you've heard people that uh, are trying to get spaces to uh, to show their latest. Yeah, that is exactly right. You know, the show tends to reflect what's happening in agriculture in general. It makes sense. That's what we're seeing more of new than anything. You know, especially with the uh, AI coming into it. You know, this show is, it is a premier ag networking opportunity in the, in the Carolinas. And it's a good thing you have wide aisle space because there's a lot of folks catching up with their neighbors. <laughs> is, is you've got put the show together this year. Anything that you kind of attacked from a different angle, tried something different? Uh, I always say that a show should be like the circus. So when you go to a circus, you know what you're going to see, but you're always going to see a few things that you weren't expecting, right? <laughs> so, so this year, I've got a few new things going on. Uh, for instance, Duke Energy is coming in, and they're going to do a, a live wire demonstration. So, so, folks, what happens if you got a down power line, which, you know, can happen when you're out pulling farm equipment and 
over the years, we've gotten more and more um, uh, commercial construction equipment. A lot of grading equipment will be there again this year for the landscapers out there. Lots of riding lawnmowers. But in general, you know, folks can expect to see a lot of the same exhibitors they see each year, along with probably about 50 new ones. You've had, like, lumberjack competitions in the past or demonstrations. You having that? Yes. Uh, Steel is bringing back uh, what's called SAWA. Uh, this is a group of uh, lumberjack enthusiasts who go around and, and do demonstrations. Uh, they will be back, and that's always popular. Pesticide continuing education classes on Wednesday. I know Thursday, uh, we're going to be there Thursday morning in the Premier Ag booth as we were right. last year. And Thursday also, late morning, is the Ag Development Forum. That goes on in the whole Hauser building, as I recall. That's correct. That's uh, kind of the annual get-together for uh, North Carolina Department of Agriculture each year. Um, it's where the economists come in and kind of talk about what they see coming up in the Commissioner Troxler will give his annual State of Agriculture presentation. You know, we've had every kind of weather in the last dozen years, right? I mean, we've had, I can remember sloshing through the snow one Thursday morning, and uh, I can also remember being in shirt sleeves another. So uh, have you put the reservation in for the forecast? I put it in for uh, about 55 degrees and sunny, but we'll see if that uh, holds true. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the hours on uh, each day, opening day, and uh, runs through Friday, right? Right. Wednesday and Thursday, hours are 9 until 4, and we close an hour earlier at 3 on Friday. David Zimmerman of the Southern Farm Show. You can plan your attack by heading to southernshows.com, and there you'll find a map of the show and a list of exhibitors. We'll be there on Thursday, February 1st, for Henry's show, Talk of the Town, and uh, Jeff and I will have a couple of interviews that we'll share with you the first part of February. You're listening to Agriculture in North Carolina. Thanks to the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. North Carolina's official business development and marketing program for agriculture. More than agriculture. It's got to be NC. This is Ag and NC. I'm Dan Miller. We talk about seed genetics on this program. Good time of year to talk about cotton seed genetics and find out a little bit about this year's crop as well. So I reached out to the Mid-Atlantic Phytogen rep. I'm Jason Woodward. I am a cotton development specialist with Phytogen University. That might be putting the cart a touch ahead of the horse. Jason, give us some background as to um, where you were born, brought up, and how you got to Phytogen. Yep. I was born and raised in southwest Oklahoma on a small farm. Got an undergraduate degree at Southwestern Oklahoma State University, uh, found my interest in biology, went on to Oklahoma State University, majoring in plant pathology, nematology, and then went on from there to the University of Georgia, where I got a Ph.D. in plant pathology. After graduating at Georgia, I went to uh, Texas A&M, Texas Tech Universities, where I was on faculty for 12 years in plant pathology, extension, plant pathology, nematology for cotton, peanut, and other field crops. What led you from Texas A&M to the Mid-Atlantic region for phytogen? And I'm going to guess that your work at Texas A&M on uh, seed varieties and hybrids had something to do with it. Yeah. So I really, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the job that I had in Texas. Whenever I was working with phytogen on developing some of their nematode-resistant varieties, I saw the value in that technology, and I saw the impact that it would have in the industry, and I wanted to be part of that. I left academia and came to industry. Let's talk about the 2023 cotton crop, and specifically, how was the growing season as far as weather was concerned? 
it was extremely challenging from the beginning of the season throughout. Overall, we had a, a decent crop. Um, some places there was an exceptional crop. Some places it was below average. And how cotton performed depended on what kind of weather we experienced throughout the year. Um, some of the challenges we dealt with early were cool, wet conditions. Cotton was slow to grow off um, and get established. And then we get into the uh, middle part of the growing season. We had some very dry conditions, a lot of part of June, July, and August. And then we had some really fair conditions in September, maybe some overcast um, problems in some places, but finished strong for the most part. And harvest conditions were, I think, exceptional in the uh, mid-Atlantic. And that really helped us realize the potential that we had in some places. Again, overall, some areas might have been a little bit disappointing, but uh, they, they could have been far worse than, than they actually were considering some of the severe weather we had. To the naked eye, it didn't look like we were as consistent in the field this year as we have been in past years. Is that me? Is it, or is it just the heat stress? I think you're, you're spot on. Um, it, some of the problems that we saw were heat stress, and it was really related to interactions between when the cotton was planted and when the heat stress was experienced. Um, I actually looked at some of our data. Later planted trials tended to do better than some of our earlier planted trials, which is pretty atypical. Um, we typically see the inverse relationship where earlier planted cotton does better than later planted cotton. But I think given the, the stress that we saw early, um, that impacted yield potential on some of those extremely early planted fields. And then that those later planted fields allowed those to meet their yield potential. Well, you've had boots on the ground. What do you think yield yields are like this year as compared to the last couple of years? That's a, that's a tricky question. I cover pretty big geography. Um, I've picked some 500-pound fields, and I've picked some 1,700-pound fields. So it really goes back to, you know, when was it planted, what were the conditions of planting, and really um, when did you or did you not catch that cotton rain shower in the summer? Do you see more people planting a cover crop for cotton, and uh, is it insanely beneficial or is it not so much? I, we, we had some trials in the past where cover cropping uh, – and, and reduced tillage really is really beneficial. If we look at the impact of what's happening with regard to cotton establishment and development, there are some things we need to watch out for. There are also some, some benefits that we need to consider as well. You know, if we look at cover crops, um, if we've got very thick cover crop out there at planting, we want to make sure that we get good seed to soil contact so that we get that crop established. One thing that we might see with a heavy cover crop as it relates to environmental conditions, that cover crop does a pretty good job of preserving moisture. Um, that's what we're utilizing it for. But in doing that, it can also keep our soil temperatures a little bit cooler for a longer period of time. So I do think that's something that cover crops are very beneficial. Uh, we need to utilize them to the best of their ability and, and know um, what to look for as it relates to impacts that that might have or when we can get in and get started from a, a planting standpoint. Take us back a little bit in seed development for cotton specifically. How far do we have to go back before there is sort of a paradigm shift developing seeds and varieties and hybrids withstand some pests? Yeah, if we go back, and I'll use nematode resistance as an example. Um, nematode resistance isn't necessarily new. Um, resistance was deployed in the early 70s. Unfortunately, we didn't have the yield potential or the quality in the cottons that were developed with regard to nematode resistance back then. Resistant varieties were very, very good at reducing the damage caused by, by nematodes but they didn't travel very well off that acre. Um, with regard to phytogen cottonseed and the emphasis that we've put in on breeding for nematode-resistant varieties, we have that in elite germplasm, and we now have really good resistance to both root-knot nematodes as well as reniform nematodes in highly productive varieties that fit across the farm. The benefit there is looking at conventional breeding as well as um, using some of these molecular techniques to identify 
what genes we're targeting and focusing on and making sure that we're advancing products that have those genes that provide that resistance where we need it, but still have excellent yield potential to fit across the farm. And one size doesn't fit all, right? I mean, it'd be great if it did, but the reality is is that you got hybrids that might do well with uh, one particular uh, nematode, which would be like root knot, but yet doesn't cover everything. Right, and I, I think one better way to look at that is to, is to scale back and look at, at um, variety deployment across the farm. You know, we, we look at performance, and if we go after that highest yielding variety and plant every acre to that, we're putting ourselves at risk from a lack of genetic diversity standpoint, but also with regard to maturity. Um, one thing that I saw last year related to the, the weather conditions that we saw, our later planted trials tended to favor higher yields, and within those trials, our earlier maturing varieties tended to do well so we could maximize production and yield by having early maturing varieties out there. So if we're looking at utilizing varieties with certain agronomic attributes, we want to we want to look at maturity in addition to yield and other technologies such as herbicides, disease resistances as, as well. The key to the whole thing, though, is, is soil testing, is it not? Yeah, it's knowing your enemy. Um, if we go out, and, we, and, and I think this is extremely important looking into planning for cotton in 2024, we want to maximize our successes early. We want to know what the limitations and pitfalls may be. So that soil testing that's taking place, pay close attention to what your soil analyses are, what the needs may be, budget accordingly for a fertilizer input, but then also taking advantage of opportunities to identify other problems, specifically with regard to soilborne pests. If you've got areas in a field where you're throwing the fertility at the at the field and we're not seeing a corresponding Yield uh, response, especially in years where we've had weather that we should have exceeded or at least met that yield goal, start looking for other explanations as to what's going on, be it a a hard pan issue if you're in a no-till situation and have been for a number of years, or looking for pests such as nematodes. Yeah, so for for the root knot piece, um, Phytogen in particular, as well as a number of other seed companies, have had root knot resistant varieties. The limitation to those root knot resistant varieties they really fit mostly on that nematode acre on the farm. Our root knot resistance that we have is vetted. It's been around for, for several years. They would be hybrids that are best used in uh, in fields that you might have that have got nematode, that you know have nematode problems. That would be my old positioning point with nematode-resistant varieties. And, and really, I think some of the, the threshold conversations that I've been a part of in the past were around at what point do you have nematodes that cause problems in a field that justify use of a nematicide or a fumigant. Um, I'm confident in the varieties that we have right now that if you don't have nematodes on the farm, we're not giving up any yield. There is no drag associated with the varieties that we're currently selling in the phytogen portfolio. So that threshold right now is if you have any root knot or any reniform, you might as well utilize a resistant variety because the the root knot piece is fixed in most all, if not all, phytogen varieties that are sold in the mid-Atlantic and the southeast. Um, and the reniform-resistant varieties are stacked with that root knot. So we're not, placing, we're not placing phytogen varieties on the farm just to go after nematodes. We've got that protection there if you need it or not. You can't breed crops to be resistant to everything. But are we doing better, actually, with our seed varieties for hurricanes? We are, um, and that's one of the things that we look at as a selection criteria for advancement of varieties. We call it a storm tolerance. Storm tolerance rating, you know, really kind of got its legs out in West Texas where they need a 
a tighter bowl that, that hangs in during some adverse conditions late in the year, high wind, you know, precipitation. As we start advancing in varieties and looking at that parameter in the mid-Atlantic, we do see some, some great benefit to some varieties that are, that are open and they're highly pickable, but they can still hang on and not be blown out if we do have high wind and, and weather conditions coming off of hurricanes. Everybody's looking at what they're going to put in in the spring. Everybody's looking at acres, also varieties. What excites you about what's lined up for 2024? Like I mentioned earlier, trying to identify opportunities to extract value from cotton. For example, we can't take all of our cotton acres and plant them to peanuts simply because peanut price looks more attractive than cotton. We need to utilize those cotton acres where we can maximize productivity this year, but then also look at what benefits do nematode-resistant varieties bring to soybean or specialty crops, or, or what value can we extract from that, that cotton acre this year and years to come. And I'm painting with a broad brush here. I know your listener base is, is, is pretty broad as well, but I think if we look at a phytogen portfolio, you'll hear numbers like phytogen 360, phytogen 400, phytogen 411, and phytogen 443. I still think um, those four varieties give you a lot of success on the farm, cover the majority of situations on the farm. Those are four varieties that most of your listeners will probably have some experience with directly or have heard about from their neighbors. Dr. Jason Woodward, Cotton Development Specialist for Mid-Atlantic Region with Phytogen. Coming up in just a moment, last week's commodity numbers as they compare to the prior week. That's on Ag and NC. Thanks in part to Donna Byram with First Choice Insurance Partners. Call Donna today at 252-792-1189. Let her protect your yield so you can stay in the field. Thanks to April and BG at the Farmer's Connection. If you've not put a copy of the Farmer's Connection in your hands, I highly recommend it. Farmer's Connection is a newsprint magazine with information and ads from dealers and suppliers right here in North Carolina. Check out used equipment prices from dealers like Mark Chesson and Sons in Williamston, Acock Tractor in Goldsboro, Modern Tractor in Richlands, Southern Equipment in Goldsboro and Williamston, and Premier Equipment Company in Rocky Mount, Enfield, Washington, and Aden. Grab the Farmer's Connection. You'll find it online and at independent equipment dealers throughout North Carolina. For the week, February live cattle rose $3.62.5 to close at $169.35. January feeder cattle futures gained $5.60 on the week, closed at $220.90. It was a good week last week for the cattle future bulls. Nearby February hogs ended the week at $71.90. That's up $292.5 since the prior Friday. Hog traders have rather clearly become more optimistic about the winter outlook than was the case a few weeks ago. North Carolina egg prices were higher on small, lower on the balance when compared to the prior week. The weighted price average quoted Thursday, December the 14th. For small lot sales of delivered carton grade A eggs was 207.43 for extra large, $200.50 for large, 193.27 for medium, and 148 for small eggs. Number two yellow shelled corn was mixed five cents lower to nine cents higher when compared to the prior week. Prices ranged mostly four forty one to five fifty four at the feed mills, four twenty one to five seventy at the elevators through Thursday's close. Number one yellow soybeans were mixed forty three cents lower, sixty one cents higher, ranged twelve thirty two to thirteen forty two at the processor, mostly twelve thirty four to thirteen fifty one at the elevators. Number two red winter wheat mixed as well, fourteen cents lower, four cents higher, ranged five dollars and thirteen cents to six whole dollars at the elevators. And finally, a reminder that Bill Carone Cars in Wallace is the only Chevy GM dealer in eastern North Carolina to be an ag pack dealer. 
which means that any farmer who buys a vehicle at Bill Carone is eligible for more than $30,000 in savings on products you probably already use. Everything from tires to crop products. Check out the advantages of the AgPAC program at Bill Carone Cars in Wallace or BillCaroneGM.com. That's this week's Agriculture in North Carolina. Subscribe to the longer free Apple or Spotify podcast or download the IBX Media app. Details on all that and links to our sponsors on our website, agandnc.com. Thanks to Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Choice Insurance Partners, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Agriculture in North Carolina, copyright 2023, Interbanks Media. For Jeff Turner, myself, Dan Miller, make it a great week.